1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 through 20. Let us begin in verse 11. And ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see you, your face, with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this portion of Scripture from Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. And as we have been studying through this epistle, it has been a great blessing for us to see their godly example. A church that was not being rebuked, but had so many wonderful graces that we here can learn from, even in our church today. And so we pray that as we continue to study this letter, that you would now take this word, again, not as simply the word of men, but as it is in truth, your very word. And we pray that you would write it on the heart of each one here and do a mighty work in us through this passage. And this we pray now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, again, brethren, so good to be gathered together here this morning to have God's infallible, inerrant, perfect word in our hands, for sure. What a glorious text we're going to look at, Lord willing, this morning. In chapter 1 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, in paragraphs paragraphs 4 and 5, it says this, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of man or of any church, but wholly upon God. When we view the scriptures, like Paul viewed the scriptures, like he was commending the Thessalonians for viewing the scriptures, brethren, it is a gift of God, one where he would give this to us, that we would look at the word of God as they looked at it. Listen as the the confession continues. It relies wholly upon God, who is truth itself and its author. Amen? Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. 
Brethren, this is so important. They continue there in the confession. They say, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to these things. Now consider these, brethren, again. These are sound doctrinal things that we, as we consider the word of God, as we have it in our hands, these things are so important to us. First of all, they said that we would have a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. That we would have a high and reverent esteem for the Holy Scriptures. Why is that so important that we would have a high and reverent, if you will, for the Scriptures, this esteem? Because when you have a high and reverent esteem for the Scriptures, you know who you have a high and reverent esteem for? God himself. And what God says. Amen. And again, this is the, this is the word of God. They say to the heaviness of the matter, to the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of its style, to the consent of all the parts, to the scope of the whole, which is overall to give God glory. Again, brother, and that's why Christians gather together on the Lord's day. We come as the ecclesia, the called out to gather together to glorify our God who saved our wretched souls. Amen. They continue to the full discovery it makes of the only way of men's salvation. Now, I know Americans don't like that. I know that when we preach the exclusivity of Christ, Christ alone, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. The Bible goes on and on and on. When we do that, of course, we are not well received, but we receive the word of God well. Amen? And to many other incomparable excellencies and to the entire perfections thereof, our arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding, they continue, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Ghost. And again, brethren, we understand this, that there are many who believe parts of the Bible, and they'll stand up in the pulpits and they'll say, well, we believe, part. we have churches in this city who will claim these things. We believe part of the Bible, but you don't really believe all of it, do you? Oh, yes, I do. Brethren, I, I tell the other elders, if I ever get up in the pulpit and I say something so foolish as that, that I believe part of the Scriptures, I, they have my full permission before I do any damage to anyone, which I would never want to do spiritually, to just take that shepherd's crook Give me a yank down the stairs into that cloakroom back there and beat me into a whatever you want to beat me into. Save those who hear. It is from an inward work of the Holy Ghost bearing witness by faith and with the word of God in our hearts. Now let me just say this, brethren, this morning. There could be nothing better written, better said of a church than what Paul wrote concerning this church in Thessalonica. That they did indeed have this view of Scripture. Look at verse number 13 there of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look what it says. He says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, listen, which effectually worketh in them that believe. Again, brethren, that word effectually means executing in a manner to produce its intended effect. 
And believe you me, the brothers, when you are a true Christian and you have the high view of God's word like this, his word is effectual in your heart. It does change you. It does change the way you think. It changes your heart. It changes you from the inside out, which is a miraculous, amazing thing, brethren, isn't it? When you consider the power of God's word. Now, we remember, for those of us who have been with us, as we're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We remember in chapter 1 that Paul thanked God for divinely choosing the believers in Thessalonica, for divinely electing them. And that's what the Father does, amen? He divinely elects us unto salvation. Here in chapter 2, he thanks God that they received the word of God, as it is, not of the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. It is an amazing thing, isn't it? To see God working. He works in the heart. He draws them and they turn through the regeneration. They then in turn look at his word and go, I'm going to receive that as it is the word of God. It is such a blessing, brethren. I often tell people, and I'm not, please, I don't like to bring myself into these things, but the reality of it is when the Lord saved me, you want to know one thing? I would open his word. I would read his word. Do I understand everything in his word? No. And uh, I am I'm finite. I'm a finite being reading the infinite words. But all you do, brethren, is you read a text. You read something you may not understand. And you say, I don't understand it, but I believe it. Because it is in God's word. Because this, brethren, is what America needs. You think America needs some president? Brethren, listen to me now. It isn't a new president who still is going to be for killing children and transvestites and all of this unholy, ungodly, ungodly stuff. We need sound Christian men. Sound Christian churches. You realize that it is the churches who are turning on the true Bible believers more than the world is. This nonsense in 2019. Oh, I could go down a rabbit hole here really quick. This nonsense in 2019, most of the persecution came from quote-unquote churches. To those of us who said, fooey on you, you got the porno shops open, you got all this other stuff open, and you're going to stop us from gathering around the Lord's table and singing hymns unto our God and hearing his word preached? You're insane. You are reprobate, as Romans 1 says. You're reprobate. We didn't fall for it, but for what? A couple weeks, brother, and we finally realized it wasn't Ebola. Finally realized, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You can ride in the streets and burn the cities down and not put a diaper on your face and it's okay. But the brethren can't meet. The brethren can't meet and worship the Lord our God. You are insane. May it never be. And you know what, brethren? Hold on. They're doing it again. It's coming again. I just saw a great report, the CDC. Did you hear about this dangerous thing? Well, did you hear about the gospel? That will change your heart. It's stunningly amazing. They're at it again. Do not fall for it, brethren. Stand firm in the Lord. Trust in what the Lord is doing, not what they're doing. Amen? This, brethren, is such a great accommodation that Paul gives to the church because, indeed, They had this glorious understanding of the word of God. In fact, 
Job, you remember, the oldest book in the Bible. Job said these words as he was carried along by the Holy Ghost to give us the highest, the utmost, the amazing greatest possible interpretation of what it means to have a high view of God and a high view of his word. Not as the word of men, but as the word of God as it is in truth. Listen to what Job said. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. For I have esteemed the words of God more than my necessary food. Now, brethren, that is a high view of God's word. That even the cheeseburgers I ate yesterday and the food I ate all week long, Job looks at all and says, No, I esteem his word higher than even that because of the importance of the word of God. I esteem it higher. Now that, that word, esteem, is really, really important. It's not the liberal self-esteem. No, brethren, the problem in America today is not that our esteem is too low, our esteem is too high. We think too high of ourselves. Me thinks we think too high of ourselves. Yes. Yes. That word, esteem, means to set the highest value on God's holy word, as Job did, and as we see in our text this morning, that the Thessalonians did, having a high, holy esteem for the word of God. May that be said of us, brethren. Amen? Again, we, we're going through this letter, and we see all of this practical application, all these things that Paul is writing to the church. It is as applicable to us today as tomorrow's what? Text, Twitter, Facebook, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. It's an amazing thing, brother, and I keep saying that because this is so stunning. Now look here, brother. Paul lays that foundation. It is the word of God, brother. It is not the word of man. Look what he says here, if you will, in verses 11 and 12. Read there with me, if you would. Look at verses 11 and 12. He starts with a very familiar uh, statement here. As ye know, remember we looked at that. This is the fourth time now that Paul is saying, Brethren, you know me. You know my ministry. You know how I've been. You know how I've acted. All these lies, these accusations earlier in the text, they're complete lies. As you know, brethren, like Peter said, right? I said that a couple weeks ago, bringing to remembrance these things, these holy things. Remember, even though you know them, remember these things. Brethren, I'm saying that to you this morning. Even though you probably know this, remember these things. Look at verse 11. As you know. How we, three things, three things pop out in, our, in this text to us here in verse 11. How we, number one, exhorted, and number two, comforted, and number three, charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Verse 12. Now, brethren, this is all tied. Again, this nonsense of easy believism, one trusts Christ, that there's no conversion, there's no change. You set one who claims a profession, you set him next to a worldly man, and he looks exactly the same. No, 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 no. That's never taught in Scripture anywhere. And not here either. Look what he says in verse 12. These three things will, will do this, that you might what? That you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Now, again, as I said, Paul for the fourth time says, as you know, you know me. Amen? So he appeals to that which the Thessalonians already knew to be true about him and about their ministry. But we take note here, brethren, that Paul changes his metaphor 
And again, this is so important as we remember when we were together last time. That Paul changes his metaphor from a nursing, loving mother to what here in verse 11? In verses 7, he says, this is how we were before you Thessalonians. We were like a nursing, loving mother. Here he says in verse 11, what? He changes it to a father. Now, why would Paul do that? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked, because I asked myself that same question. Why would Paul do that? Well, brethren, here's the idea. He uses the example of a father with his children to explain another characteristic of their ministry. All of us know, all of us know by growing up and by living, that there is indeed a divine difference. Okay, there is a divine difference between a man and a woman. Did you know that, brother? Do you understand that? There's a divine difference. There's a divine difference between a mother and a father. Now, we live this out. I don't know how many of you watch football or have watched football in the past. You know, little Johnny's out on the football field. He makes a touchdown in the end zone or he gets hurt. He gets up. What does he say? He doesn't say, hi, Dad. Hi, Father. He says, hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. That's what they do. There's a big difference, and this is what we're seeing here in Paul's metaphor. He changes it from a loving mother to a father because a father has a divine role within the family. So does a mother. <laughs> a mother is one way. When Johnny skins his knee, uh, let me see. Oh, there, there. Where's Samson? Right back there. Yesterday at the wedding I did, there's a little Samson beating feet, trips over the, the photo guy, bang, knocks his little forehead, little noggin, little road rash right there. And he's not looking for Connor. He's looking for Hannah, his mother. It's an amazing thing. So Paul here, of course, as we know, now, Father should be tender towards his children. Yes, we are, and we've been instructed in Ephesians to do that, right? But he must also be firm to make sure that lessons are learned and that character is developed. And not that mom can't do that. She does. We home, obviously, we home. My wife has a great influence upon our children and all of our grown ones that are here, too. A great influence. But sometimes when I come home and the classroom is out of order, who puts it back in order? Right, honey? <laughs> She's trying not to hear. Seth's ignoring me right now. He's talking to his mother. I don't want to talk about the last time dad came home and he had to straighten the order in the class out because that's what we do. That is the firmness of the father. The father comes in, straightens things out rather quickly, right, Seth? Oh, yeah. Right, Levi? Where's Selah? She's ducking down below the pew there. Where'd she go? Oh, oh! it's amazing. So my children, my own children, know there's a difference between a mother and a father. They know the role that the father plays. He comes home, he's got some authority, he's got a little more sternness that mother doesn't have, and it's a beautiful thing. This is exactly what Paul is doing. He's making sure that the children in Thessalonica will mature and become godly men and women. This is what he's doing. It's a stunning thing. In fact... As a father, Paul says, you know that we exhorted you. That's the first thing that the verse tells us, that, he, that they exhorted him. That means to call one alongside, to use words that incites one to laudable and commendable deeds. That's why gathering with the brethren is so important, so that we can incite one another. <laughs> you know, we're insidious people anyway, right? We're, we're against the government all the time. We're this and that. Hey, listen, we're going incite, to incite one another to godly and good deeds. That's why we're here. 
brethren and sisters, to incite one another. Yeah, that's what it means. To good deeds. Well, I want you to see this. Paul loved this word. He loved using this word to the church at Thessalonica. And I want you to see how he does this. Look at chapter 4. Now, brethren, again, this is so important to us. These are relevancies of our day. These are the things that we should be exhorting one another to. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse number 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received us how ye ought to walk. You see how, again, that's going to the walk. Just like in verse number 12, it's about the walk. It's about the effectual working of God, the Holy Spirit, His Word. It's about how we walk. And we're going to define that word here in a moment. But listen, exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Look at verse 2. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Paul's exhorting the brethren. (laughs) You know what we said, the words of Christ. You have believed the word of God, not as men, but as the word of Christ. And therefore, you know what we've told you. This is what you do to walk godly, to separate yourself from the world. Brethren, I know I beat this like a, I don't know, what would it be? Like a dead horse. Okay? All of us, brethren, if you're saved, are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God. Do you understand that? That you are not to continue to look like the world. You're not continuing to act like them, to smell like them, to act like them, to be like them. None of it. We are a what? A peculiar people. And this is what he's saying. He's separating the true believers and how they walk because of the effectual working of the word of God on them. And again, brethren, it's always Jesus, the word of God, God himself, is always the cause. It's not some moral thing that you can drum up inside you. It is the working out of the spirit of God in one's life as we walk according to godliness. This, again, I know is a foreign concept to many in the West. But it wasn't to Paul. And it wasn't to Jesus. He, again, exhorts them. Look at where else. Now, brethren, listen, we should exhort one another to walk in the commandments of Christ. Look at chapter 5. Again, brethren, again, we understand in the light of every chapter, the Lord's second coming, in the light of that, in every chapter, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, in the light of that, look what he says. Look at chapter 5. Look at verse number 14. Uh, right in the middle, by the way, of uh, 16, impar- or actually 19 imperative commands, we just hopped in the middle of it. So once we get to chapter 5, brethren, we're really going to learn some practical stuff to live this out. Paul's giving them 19 imperative commands here in chapter 5. But look there, if you would, at verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren. There that word is again. We're going to exhort you. Warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. But what? Ever follow that which is good. Do you see that there again? There's this walking out of the effectual working of God's word and in the heart, the Holy Spirit of God transforming us and sanctifying us. Follow these good things. These are what we should be doing, that which is good, both among yourselves and to all the men, the world. The world should look at us and go, there's something different about him. 
And, and not only should they see it, they should hear it because Mormons look good too. But what you've got to do is you've got to have the actions with the words. The gospel's got to come out. The true Christ must be preached. Or men are lost. There's that exclusivity again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He is exclusive. There is only one way. So here, brethren, we're exhorted. Paul's exhorting them to follow good things, to do good things. Well, look at Hebrews. <laughs> look at just Hebrews chapter 10. Just a couple of them here in the scripture. This idea of exhorting. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. And this, brethren, again, is so applicable for us today. People who do not have a high view of the local church do not have a high view of God. Do not have a high view of gathering the brethren together, period. No. Otherwise, you'd be doing this. Again, a true believer. This is what they do. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I want you to notice that Paul, who, well, I'm going to say Paul. I think it was Paul. We don't know for sure, but I think it was Paul because of some of the things that are written here in, this, in the form of writing. But... Look what he gives. He credits the blood of Christ first. Look at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. Now he goes into a bunch of let us. You see that there? Let us, let us, let us. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the congregation. Look what he says. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, Hebrewic, so much Hebrew, but it's just a great picture. It's a great type of what Christ did. Look at verse number 23. How's that start out? Let us hold fast. Let us draw near, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Look at verse 24. Let us consider. <laughs> There's a lot of let us is there. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider who? One another. Okay, brethren, we're going to get into some one another's. Let us consider one another. Look what it says. To provoke unto love and what? Good works. Again, this is the exhortation. This is what this means. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. You see that there? That's why we're here this morning. You're not just here to listen to me preach. You're here as a one another. You're here as a Christian, as a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're saved, that you can do the one another's. And we're to exhort one another. Oh, yes. Unto what? Love and good deeds. Because tomorrow, brethren, you'll be going back to work. I'll be, well, I won't, no, no, tomorrow's what? Tomorrow's Labor Day. I'll be heading to the golf course, Lord willing. But Tuesday, when you go to work, you're not going to have this kind of atmosphere, this kind of safety, this kind of protection in the house of God, with the people of God exhorting you onto good works and to good things, and to follow Christ and his commandments. The opposite's going to happen. Oh, yeah, we're going to see that here. Oh, yeah, Satan will be right there with you. And his minions will be right there with you to do what he tried to do to Paul and what the Jews tried to do to Paul in our text, and that is to interrupt you. That is to cut in upon you and upon your walk. This is true, brother. This is what happens. This is what we see. So... Again, in our text, 
We are to exhort one another. And so much the more, listen, brethren, as we see the day approaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the church for 2,000 years, nearly almost, has been in this, as we've seen in 1 Thessalonians, in this constant watch. This constant watch for who? For who? For Christ. There's a constant watch going on, and there has been for years and years and generations and eons waiting for our Savior to come. That's why this morning as believers, when we gather around the Lord's table, what do we proclaim? We're, we're proclaiming His death till He comes. Oh yeah, He's coming. Even though the world mocks, even though they make fun of us, even though they laugh at us, oh, just like they did. Just like it was in the days of Noah. <laughs> Amen? Amazing, isn't it? Just like those days. In fact, I'm not so sure that we haven't surpassed Rome. And I don't know about Noah's day, but we're getting close. Every thought, only evil continually. Wow. That is amazing stuff. It really is. So Paul, or the author of Hebrews here, says, Let us exhort one another. Let us incite one another unto commendable good deeds. This is what Paul says. Now, not only does he exhort them. I want you to see again, brother, and we're working our way through. I know you're going, well, there's like 19 verses left. How are we going? Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get it together, brother. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at the second thing. Not only does he say that we exhorted you, we certainly did. Look at the second thing. And we comforted you. This is such a beautiful thing, brother. Can I use the liberal's language? It's such a beautiful, harmonious thing. It really is. Good balance. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see good biblical balance here because there's an exhortation. And now he says, we also comforted you. Do you know how crazy it is to lay the law on someone, call them a lost sinner in which we should and over and over again and they just leave them there? Oh, what an, un what an unholy, ungodly thing to do for pastors and Christians to do. You preach that law. You preach that damnation. And then you sling open wide the door of the gospel. You can't leave them there. Paul doesn't do that. He is here. He exhorts them. He's challenging them. And then he says, we also comforted you. What a good balance. A good Bible teacher, a good leader in a church, a good leader in his home. That's the balance you have to have. That's what a father should have. A good balance of exhortation and comfort. Now, that word comforted there means to console, to give strength and support in distress, in difficulty, and in danger. Now, brethren, you'll see how this is going to fit in. This is the first, again, as we're going to see add, Paul add a second thing, why these things are so important. It is indeed to comfort you, to console you, to strengthen you, to support you in distress and difficulty and danger. In fact, Paul loved that word again. Let me just show you this. Because, again, he's a balanced preacher. Very godly, balanced preacher. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at there, if you would. Look at verses 1 and 2. Look what he says. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and has sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and, what? Comfort you concerning your faith. There it is again. That's a glorious thing for one to do. An elder should always be, if you will, exhortive when he needs to be and comforting when he needs to be. 
A father should be exhortive when he needs to be. He should be comforting when he needs to be. Right, Seth? He could get up and tell some stories about sometimes how I'm not exactly Mr. Comforter, which I should be. But you see, brethren, it's the growing in the Lord. It's that sanctification. It's that learning. It's that constant asking the Spirit of God to apply it into your heart so that you might be like these Christians are being exhorted to be. He comforts them. Look there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at verse number 17. Again, he does it again. Look here if you will. Look at verse number 17. Look into the pronouns that Paul uses. If you think the imminent return of Christ is something new that, you know, some premillennialist just made up, uh, that's not the case. Because if you look here, Paul speaks in the current pronoun, we. We, we, we. He's saying we. He's including himself as he's writing. So the church has always been waiting. The church, since Paul wrote this letter, has been waiting for the return of Christ. We. Look what he says there, if you will, in verse number 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Look at verse 18. Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these words. Again, Paul is using this glorious comfort, these words, remembering brother and reminding the brother that what's coming next and what he's going to address next, again, the second portion of this, why this is so important that we encourage one another, that we comfort one another with these words. Because they're experiencing something we have never experienced. See, being called a Jesus freak is really not persecution, brother. It's really not. <laughs> it's really not. What these brothers were experiencing was real and true persecution. They were losing their lives because of their faith, the faith that they had in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a real thing. Kind of like, I don't know, Pick your favorite dictator's country. Pick your favorite communist country that's killing Christians and doing what they're doing. They're still doing it today. But yet, there are elect true believers who are indeed preaching, staying faithful because of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit in their lives. Comfort one another. Look at chapter 5. Just again, uh, look at verse number 9. He continues. For God hath not appointed us, there's that language again, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Look at verse 11. Wherefore, comfort one another. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Do you see that, brother? And again, there's so many practical things for the local church that just comes unpeeled in this thing. Time we don't have to spend this morning on it. Because I'm turning into one of those TV preachers again, sweating. I'm going to have to have Brother Howard bring my favorite holy towel up here and dry myself off. But brethren, we see again the importance of what Paul is doing here. Not only did Paul and his fellow laborers exhort the brethren and comfort the brethren, but they also charged them. And again, brethren, this is important. This is, again, where a Christian who is a believer in the word of God, not as the word of men, but it is as the word of God, this charge to us is so vital and important. Why is that? Because that word charge means to summon as a witness. It's very important, brethren, to summon as a witness, amen, if you will. It's an amazing thing when you consider to affirm, to insist, to attest with great solemnity and earnestness. Therefore, when a Christian is giving out the gospel, when one is preaching from the pulpit, there is this belief. 
There is this earnestness. There is this, if you will, attesting to what the Bible says. And if you don't believe it, it's like I always say, those pastors should go home. I would, I would stop right now. I would leave this place if I didn't believe every word of God. Every word. You have no authority without it. Because authority is not me, it's God. It's his word. What does God say? That's the authority. And if you don't believe that, what am I going to do? Get up here and tell neat stories to you? That couldn't help anybody if they tried? No. The believers need the word of God. That they might be exhorted by it. That they might be comforted by it. That they might be charged by it. To call a witness. I want you to see this. This word is used in one other place in the New Testament. Turn with me to 1 Timothy real quickly, chapter 6. 1 Timothy, chapter 6. I want, to, I want you to see this. And again, you keep in mind, you keep in mind, brethren, again, the idea of calling a witness, attesting to truth, testifying to truth. I want you to see the witness who's called here. And again, as a pastor, you brothers and sisters are listening to me this morning. Do you know who my witness is? Do you want to know who I need to be concerned about more than whether or not I hurt your feelings? Is whether or not God is pleased with what I say. Look at this where it's used. Look what Paul does here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look here again as he's exhorting his young pastor friend, his young protege, he who's going to follow behind him. Look what he says here in chapter 6. First. Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse number 11. Look what it says. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. He's talking about what he just told, talked to Timothy about. The love of money. These lustful things that, that sometimes can happen. He tells, tells them, flee these things. And follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. There you go. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So Timothy, he, he's professing that he's a believer in Christ before many people. Just like we do here. We just had a couple weeks ago a baptism. Well, the baptism didn't save them. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saved. But they professed their belief before many people in front of all of the church. Didn't save them, but they were professing, I'm united with Christ. I'm, I am linking with Christ publicly. Yeah. This is what we see here. Look what Paul, or Paul tells Timothy. Look there as we continue in our text. He says here, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number, where was I at? Oh, 13. I give thee charge. Do you see that there? That's right. He's giving him a charge. He's calling a witness. Who's the witness he's calling? Look there in the verse. I give thee charge in the sight of God. It's God, brother, who we must be concerned with, who quickeneth all things, and before Jesus Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. There it is. The pastor must be concerned. The preacher must be concerned. The Christian must be concerned with who his audience is, who his real audience is, who his real witnesses are. And that is God and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I, 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 was a, I had a prison ministry for about four years here in Bismarck. I was in the Bismarck Penitentiary out there. And uh, I remember the, uh, the uh, oh, the name just disappeared. Uh, the chaplain died that was there. And they came and asked me, would you, would you like to be the chaplain? And I said, well, I'd like to be, but you wouldn't like me to be. Well, why not, Mike? Well, because 
I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. The chaplain, you know what the chaplain's got to do? He's got to whip out his voodoo. He's got to whip out his Indian religion. He's got to whip this out. He's got to whip that out. No, brethren, you can't do it. Therefore, (laughs) they passed on me for some reason. But you cannot compromise. You cannot. You cannot. It is Christ alone. And therefore, this is what Paul is saying. He charged them. He summoned the witness. He affirmed. He's insisting to them with great solemnity and earnestness that Christ is the only way. Well, brethren, really what Paul is revealing to us here again is a good biblical balance in ministry. A father or someone who is a leader in the church, whether they're a pastor, elder, a father, or a mother, (laughs) amen, okay, is one who indeed does comfort one who indeed does exhort, and one who does indeed charge. Just like a mother who nourishes their children, and a father who instructs and prepares his children, brethren, to walk upright, to walk upright in the light of the Lord God's holy, effectual word. This is important, brethren, as he lays the foundation for us here again. It's a stunning thing when you consider that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 12 again, just to remind us of this walk. This is what Paul's doing. He's preparing them for their walk, to walk uprightly. Look at verse 12, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. See, when God calls you, you're different. When God calls you, you walk different, you think differently, you are different. You are indeed a peculiar person. That doesn't mean weird. It means that you are set apart by God. You are sanctified. You are different than the world. And this is what Paul, of course, is indeed uh, training and teaching these brethren. Now, we consider here, brethren, again, that there's no easy believism here. None. None at all. Not a hint of the carnal Christian anywhere. (laughs) We talked about this. We had a meeting the other day talking with a dear brother and sister about this very thing. That word walk is and means a course of one's life. It is a manner of one's life. Brethren, did you sin this morning? All right. Well, sure I did. But I didn't want to. But we fight it, we fall down, and we get back up again. That's exactly what a true believer does. There's repentance that's brought by the Holy Spirit of God that's wrought in one's heart. I sin. Lord, I'm sorry. You fall, you get back up again. There is a general look at your life. And one would say, no, that's not his normal walk. That's not normally how he is. If he fell, he fell, but he got back up again. But it's not the normal, brother. It's not the norm of your life. And this is what Paul is saying. This walk. When one, again, we're sinners. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to the day when this dirty old flesh is gone. Can you imagine not desiring evil things sometimes? When our bodies are, when we're glorified and the same as the Lord, just there, not having this battle, this fight, this war. I am. And the older I get, the closer it gets. (laughs) And the more I'm yearning for it. It is a fight. It is a war. And praise God this morning, if you're warring against yourself, that you are right where God wants you to be. As soon as you flow down the river, 
and there's no fight, you are in trouble. Amen? For sure. No doubt about it. This walk. Again, no easy believism. I was telling the, the good brother and sister about my own brother, who in 1986 was in Germany. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Jack Hiles. <laughs> well, anyway, if you haven't, he did more damage to the souls of men in our era than Charles Finney ever did. Charles Finney did a lot of damage. <laughs> in fact, there's still smoke on the ground from him over in the east, right where you brothers and sisters live over there, kind of on the east coast there. Yeah, my brother called me up. I got saved. Jack Hiles led me to the Lord. I'm saved. And when I look at him, you know what I see? No difference in the world. None. He blasphemes God's name more than this lost man over here does. He's a drunkard. He's these things, brethren. There was no change in the heart. It was a moral, it was a quick moral, really, if you will, gap in there. That's all it was. It wasn't a true conversion. Because when you look at the Bible and it speaks of your life, let me just give you a couple couple of practical ones about our walk. Listen, brethren, if you want to know how to walk, the Bible tells us how to. That It's not a great mystery. I don't have to run around and go, I wonder how I should walk. How should my life look? How should my life, what should it, compo- what it, should be, it can be composed of? Well, let me give you a couple of them. We walk in the newness of life. When you're saved, you walk in the newness of life. That's what you do. We walk by faith. We walk in the Spirit. We walk in Christ-like love towards one another. We walk in the light as He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in the light. In fact, if you go on to 1 John there and see what he says, if you don't do that, he says you're not a Christian. And again, it is a lifestyle. It is what your life portrays as a general rule, not as an everyday, just going in the sewer, Living like the world, brethren. No, it cannot be, and it will never be. One who has a true encounter, who is drawn by the Father, is indeed regenerated by the Spirit, and who does indeed look and see the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will change. Are we perfect and sinless? No. But guess what? The Lord will work on that too, a little progressive sanctification all along your life. You'll be being changed. It's an amazing thing. Now listen, we need to get back to our text quickly here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. We'll tie these together. This again is the second reason why a faithful leader must exhort, comfort, and if you will, charge the believer. Look at verse 13. For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of God, but as as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Look at verse 14. This is the second reason. Not only should our lives be different, but there's this thing that came upon them that we have never experienced in America, but they were. I want you to pay careful attention to what it is. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. You know why Paul mentions Judea? You know where the gospel started? (laughs) It started in Judea. That's where it started. The gospel started there, and when the gospel started there, you know what followed the gospel everywhere it went? What's happening here? 
Look what's happening. He says, you became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have what? Suffered. There it is. He's encouraging the brothers. He's comforting them and all these things. And he's charging them because this is what comes along with the gospel that started in Judea. It has always followed it along. We just preached through the book of Acts. We were there, what, brother, in about three years? And that's all you see. Acts chapter 2, the gospel begins, and boy, it is satanic persecution after satanic persecution after satanic trick after satanic trick in the early church. No different here, brethren. Look what he says. For ye also suffered like things of your own countrymen, Gentiles. He's talking about Gentiles here. The Gentiles persecuted them too. It's a stunning thing. In fact, when you figure it out, when he's, he's actually mentioning several classes of people here. The Gentiles were what? They were the Gentile believers in the gospel. They were being persecuted because they were Gentiles who believed. Look there, if you will, as he goes on. He says, even as they have of the Jews. Well, <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing, brethren. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us too. So look what he does there. He's bringing that all around. He's saying, look at those who hate Christ, those who hate the gospel. They indeed, they go after the Gentile believers of the gospel. They killed the Lord Jesus, who is the gospel himself. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? And then they also killed not only the gospel himself, but they also killed who? The revealers of the gospel, their prophets, the writers of the gospel. Think of that for a moment, brethren. I mean, this is all inclusive. (laughs) They're killing anybody and everybody that has anything to do with the gospel that started in Judea. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. It really is to understand that. Look at verse 15 there again. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Who's the us? Well, They are the current-day, present preachers of the gospel. Think of that. Just get a hold of that. The Gentile believers of the gospel were persecuted. They killed the gospel himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, their own prophets, the revealers of the gospel. And finally, they are persecuting us who are the preachers of the gospel. Again, brethren, from the beginning to the end. And if you think it's stopped, it has not. (laughs) Wednesday evenings when we're praying together, we have brethren giving reports don't we? We always have brothers who are saying, hey, pray for the persecuted. And then one brother will get up and say, hey, I heard about this, this person over here, this person over here in India, this person over here, over here, wherever it might be. They're being slaughtered for the gospel. It hasn't stopped. It's an amazing, stunning thing when you consider it. We live, and brothers, please, I'm thankful we kind of live here right now. It's changing, but I'm thankful that God has brought America to be, and that the gospel has such, had such free reign. And now they're trying to <laughs> stomp it down, and that'll never happen. Never. The gospel will indeed prevail. Right? Is that what Jesus said? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It'll go on. It might be different. But it's going to go on. It'll keep marching on as God raises faithful men and women who have the grace of God in them, who believe in the word of God and who teach the exclusivity of Christ. It will go on. In fact, again, Paul affirms the idea here of persecution. Look at chapter 3. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
He says that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed unto them. I mean, amazing, brother. Paul tells them, when you trust in Christ, when you believe in the gospel, this is what's going to follow. We were appointed unto this. We were ordained to this. Look what he says. Verse 4. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass. Look at how he closes the verse. As ye know. Brothers, you know when I was here. You know when I was here. I told you this. We are appointed unto this, and ye know it. You know it's true. And yet, we look at ourselves and we, we wonder, <laughs> I haven't had that much persecution yet. But we pray that God will strengthen each one of us. That when it comes, we may indeed know and understand that the Lord is bringing this to pass through his glorious hand. That we were indeed appointed to it if he pleases, and if it happens. Now that's a big pill to swallow. Paul, of course, wasn't done there. Of course, we're going to be going into 2 Thessalonians. But look at chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. He, he just wants again to affirm them of these things. This idea of persecution, of tribulation, of suffering for the gospel. Look at chapter 1. Look at verse number 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet because that your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other abound. To think of that. There's those one another's again. Being charitable, loving one another, caring for one another. Oh, man. So much practicality here. Look at verse 4. For that we ourselves glory you, uh, in you in the churches of God for your patience of faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Look at verse 5, which is a manifest token. It is indeed something laid upon the people of God. That when the gospel is preached, this token follows you along. Look what it says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. There it is again, brethren. When, when, one, when, when, when one of these... How should we say charlatan preachers steps into the pulpit and tells you that God wants you to have gold teeth, gold hair, gold floors, gold toilet seats, gold everything. They're lying to you. They don't preach this verse. They won't preach this book. They'll run back to the Old Testament somewhere that has nothing to do with the church and they'll talk about how, oh, look right here, see, uh, Psalm 63, 13, 33, 11. Look at here. Oh, God's going to make you ride above the fire and he's not going to let your cattle die. And I'll, No, that was Israel. That's not us. <laughs> this is us. This is us. This is what we're seeing. This is what happens when the gospel is preached. The gospel has always encountered much opposition. Paul says here that the pattern began where the gospel began in Judea. Now, we have to close. So look there at verses 17, 18, 19, and 20, and we'll bring this to a close. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. A glorious closure to the, to the text. A most glorious closure. Look there. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored to the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once again, but Satan hindered us. Imagine that. Look at verse 19. He closes the text with a rhetorical question. 
And then he answers his own question. It's a beautiful thing, brethren. Look here what he says. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Question. Now he answers it. Look what he says in the same verse. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. He closed a rhetorical question. What, what is it? And he points at them and he says, it's you. It's you where I see the effectual working of God's word in your hearts as you're living out this true gospel transformation. It's a stunning thing, brother, and when you consider it. I want just to remind us as we close that Paul said in verse 16 that the Jews first interfered with his preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles that they might be saved. But here he names the chief fiend. That's what Spurgeon called him. I like that term. The chief fiend. Satan himself. The evil master himself is always behind this, brethren. We cannot begin to imagine, as we sit here together today, the utter hatred, the utter despising that the evil one himself has concerning the gospel. No one hates it more than he does. No one hates it more when one goes and preaches the gospel to the lost, and one hates, hates it more than we are sitting here together exhorting the brethren to live a holy, godly life. No one hates it more than Satan himself, the chief fiend. <laughs> That's what Paul says. He hindered us, and that word hindered literally means to cut into the plans of Paul. He tried to break up Paul's preaching. Mark this down, as I just said. It's always the strategy of Satan to thwart any work to preach Christ to the lost or to build up the elect and to edify them. Now, again, as I said, Paul brings this chapter to a close with a rhetorical question and then answers it in the later part of the same verse. We looked at that. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not you? It's you, as we see, again, the gospel being worked out in the lives of these brothers and sisters. Now, it's interesting that Paul ends on such a crescendo, such a mountaintop, such a glorious thing as he just led them through. Here's what we're doing. This is why we do it. And brethren, this persecution thing, the Lord's coming. Amen. Keep the faith. He ends with such a great crescendo. His reward, brethren, and again, his reward uh, is here seeing and will be the seeing of the effectual eternal work of God's word, executing in a manner, producing in the Thessalonians God's intended effect. So we ask ourselves this morning as we close, what practical application? Why is this practical to me? What can it possibly do to me? Why should I be interested in what Paul has written to the church at Thessalonica? I'm glad you asked. Let me just give you a couple and then we'll close. When we live in the light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it should indeed have a great motivational effect on us as believers. Don't forget it. This is where we live. We live in a time and in a place and in an age and a dispensation of time where God is still and the church is still waiting. That should have so many substantial effects on the believer. It should sustain us through the many trials and tribulations, first of all, that we have. Anybody in here have trouble? 
Anybody in here have trials? Anybody in here have tribulation? Well, uh, you're lying if you say you don't. Because even Job said twice, man is born of trouble and the sparks fly upward. We all have trouble. Remember? That's what follows the gospel believer around, is trouble and persecution. Don't be surprised, brethren. Don't say, what is God doing to me? We should do like Paul says. I told you that you were appointed for this, even though it's difficult, even though it's hard. We must remember that this is what follows a true believer around. So it should, brothers and sisters, encourage us in our times of trouble, in our times of persecution, in the hard times of our life. And believe me, brethren, we have them. We all do. We all experience it. It's an amazing thing. You know what else it does? Not only does it sustain us through these trials and tribulations, but it really keeps one's mind set on God's eternal view. What is God doing? How is God working? What is he working out in my life right now that's going to affect it down the road? We can't see one second in front of us, but God is already working it out as he's going along. Whatever that might be in your life, in your heart, you have no idea. We, we don't have any idea, but it should cause one, again, to think on these things and say, what is the Lord doing in my life eternally? Not just the end of your nose, but what is he doing on down the stream? Why is this taking place? That should help us. And brethren, also, it should motivate us to, if you will, exhort one another, to comfort one another, to charge one another onto good deeds. As we gather together, we should be exhorting, comforting, and charging onto good deeds. This is what we should be doing. Again, a very practical thing. And finally, This, in light of Christ's return, it should cause you and I to walk worthy of God who called us. It should encourage us to be holy, to walk in a lifestyle of holiness before a lost and stinking world. They should look at us and go, Christ has indeed changed that man, that woman, that child. They're different, not because they're morally trying to be morally good inside, but because there's actually a change that has been wrought by the Holy Spirit of God. He's making me, as Romans 12, 1 and 2, amen? He's transforming us more and more into the image of his dear, beloved son, amen? This should be the Christian's desire. This should be the Christian's hope that God would be so kind to us to do that to us. Amen? All right. Well, we better, we better pray as we gather around the Lord's table together. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we, we thank you again for your word this morning. Father, we pray most earnestly that it will indeed have its and have your desired effect upon each one of us. For we do believe that the words we have here are indeed the word of God. They are not the words of men. They are indeed, in truth, the words of God. And we think over and over again about all these different passages that speak of the power and the effectual working of your word. And Father, we especially think most of all 